What's that? I have to save it till the end, you know? Okay, good evening, everybody. A special welcome and a special thank you to the Romano family for sponsoring this evening's shear in honor of Isaac's 26th birthday. The Romano family and Abello. He should, with uh, Hashem, keep on growing and keep on steiging and keep on being a source of nachas to the mishpacha, to the community, and to all of Klal Yisrael. Special thank you as always to Torah Anytime for sharing this class and many others with those who were not able to be here this evening. And the topic this evening is follow me. Follow me on Twitter. If you want to make it in the real world, you need to get yourself out there. Does this sound familiar? You got to promote you, you got to show people what you have to offer. Follow me on Twitter. And if you do like the Shirim, click the link below and subscribe. Right? <laughs> We've always had the struggle. All throughout human history, we've had the struggle between developing ourselves internally in a real, meaningful, and lasting way, in contrast to creating a persona, focusing on the image that we're trying to project to others. And it's a constant battle. What am I giving more thought, more time, and more energy in trying to, to cultivate? Am I really working on me, or am I working on how you're viewing me? Am I really focusing on trying to be and trying to rectify, trying to enhance the person that I am? Or am I working that much harder to give off a particular image of the person I think you would like me to be? This is a constant struggle. Many years ago, my Rosh Hashiva, this is going back probably 20, 25 years ago, he would say that in America, it's all about PR. And he was quoting this from his father, Reb David Leibowitz. This is not a new thing. This is not just because now we have social media. But this has really been part of the American culture and the American scene going back to its inception. You would have young men who were growing up, American boys, and many of them would choose to go to Europe. This is pre-war Europe. They would choose to go there to yeshiva. Going to learn in the mirror. Now some of those people were Roy Lakach. They really had amazing potential. And going to Europe to learn under some of the greatest Torah personalities was probably the best move. Someone like of Scheinberg, obviously gained everything from making that sacrifice and going with his young wife to Europe. But Ravdava Leibowitz said that many of the young men, why are they choosing to go to the mirror? Why don't they stay here in America and come to one of the local yeshivas? Why don't they come to my yeshiva? Because the prestige. It's going to look good on the resume. Am I really going to be gaining more? What would usually happen to, to some of these American students that would travel to Europe? They, they wouldn't really understand the shear. It was a little bit above their head. They would pay $10 a week to one of the, the good bachrim, one of the older 
boys in the yeshiva to tutor them. So they're traveling to Europe, not really to be gaining from the gedolim, but to be tutored by a bacher. So Rabbi David said, I was also a pretty good bacher. They can come to me also. But America's about PR. And it's a, it's a struggle we've had, I think, as a community, globally, but more importantly, individually. Something that we, we deal with every day. I want to read to you the tzeva. This is the, the will of Rav Aaron Steinman. His yard site is approaching in about a month. Aaron Steinman was the, the manhig, one of the, uh, the great leaders of Klal Yisrael. And before he passed away, he wrote down 13 bullet points of what he wanted to happen after, after his death. This incredible tzeva was read at the funeral itself. I wanted to share with you a couple of points here. And we'll see really a stark contrast between where Rav Aaron Steinman was coming from, and to many of us, the American mind, this might seem extreme, but looking at this through the lens of the American definition of success and promoting oneself. I greatly beseech, is number one, I greatly beseech that no one be masbid be. I don't want eulogies, neither in front of me nor not in front of me, I don't want to make any etzeres as oros. I don't want a gathering of inspiration after I pass away or any sort of similar event. Please don't write articles about me in the newspapers daily, weekly, or monthly. Don't publish my picture and don't publish my biography. Don't print signs of the Levaya throughout the city and announce on, on loudspeakers of the radio, as long as we have 10 people there, that's fine. We don't need a whole crowd. He says, try to make the time between the Petira, when I pass away, and the Kavura, and the actual burial, to be as quick as possible. And this is a halachic concept, and it's also a Kabbalistic idea, that when somebody passes away, really, that process should be as quick as possible from the death to the burial. My place in the cemetery should be amongst simple people. And please do not write on the kever at my gravestone any titles, hago, and write the brilliant one. Rather just say, here is buried Reb Aaron Leib Steinman, son of Reb Noach Tzvi Steinman. That's it. No need to elaborate. The matseva, right, the stone itself, should be the cheapest and simplest, not to waste money for buying an expensive plot in the cemetery. And even on those days where it's customary to come and visit my grave, don't waste your time with that. It's more important to me that you spend the day learning Torah with sincerity. I request that anyone who seeks to do something in my behalf, I encourage you, the men should learn Mishnayis, women should say Tehillim, and that will be a Nachas Ruach that will serve me in a wonderful way.
I ask not to be referred to with the title of tzaddik. Don't call me righteous or yarei shemayim or one who feared God. So that I shall not be embarrassed by this in the world of truth. I greatly beseech forgiveness from all those whose honor I have slighted. And he goes on to say that my descendants shall not follow the Aaron into the cemetery, as is the custom, the established custom in Yerushalayim. What's interesting is after Aaron Leib Steinman passed away, there were elaborate articles about him and his life and his righteousness in all of the religious newspapers. So what happened there? Were they just disobeying the wishes of the Gadol Hador? So Hamodiyah printed uh, that they asked the question to Reb Chaim Kanievsky as to whether or not we should really not write anything about Rav Arnleib. And his response is, you have, this is the handwritten letter of his son, Rav Yitzchak Shol, quoting from his father, Rav Chaim Kanievsky. He wrote back, by publishing articles and by having gatherings and hespedim and eulogies that will uplift the banner of Torah and that will increase the honor of heaven this was the goal this was the, the mission of Rabbi Aaron Leim Steinman his whole life to raise and inspire the masses. Therefore, mechovo seinu, not only is it permissible to write things about his life and to get together and eulogize him, but it's mechovo seinu, it's our obligation, lahagdil as kavod ha-Torah, to raise up the honor of Torah, uke'es, and these are amazing words, right now, says Rav Chaim Kanievsky, Maron Zeicher Tzadik Kadosh Rocha Rav Aaron Leib Merutza Meod Mikol Shevach Sheomer Malav. Right now in the world of truth, he will be happy with our sharing of his greatness. Because if it's going to inspire others, it's going to encourage others to be more committed to Torah and Torah learning. Right now, this is what he wants. That was the ruling of Rav Chaim Kanievsky. So I'm not going to get into how this works exactly. When someone of Rav Aaron Leib's stature makes it very clear, I don't want this to happen, yet we have the ability to paskin, to rule almost against his wishes based on the understanding that right now, that's not really what he wants. Interesting and complex discussion, but not for now. (coughs) But just to understand, where, where was he coming from? Why was he so repulsed by, by Kavod? By having people say nice things about him? Now, obviously, he was an Anav. He was a very humble person. He was a Godel of a stature that, that we can't even relate to. But you would think, someone who doesn't care about the glitz and the glamour, and he didn't care about that at all, and just seeing the way he lived and the way he conducted himself, there was nothing gashmias, there was nothing physical, there was no indulgence. All of that stuff was worthless to him. But, but why does he so recoil 
by the notion that people are saying all these wonderful things about him. Where is that coming from? And it's in such stark contrast to what we feel, we as Americans, brainwashed Americans in Western society, we feel is the definition of success. What does it mean to actually make it? So usually the first connotation that comes to mind is, I'm very wealthy, I have a lot of money, and therefore I have a lot of control. But more than the control, I have prestige. I have power. People look up to me. People know who I am. That means I've made it. If you look through the lens of a true Torah personality, that is absolute narishkeit. That means nothing. And if anything, that's repulsive. I'd like to explore a little bit deeper what exactly this Das Torah, this Torah perspective is, and get a little bit of a glimpse into sort of Aaron Leib as to why he wanted to stay so far away from any of these titles or grandiose speeches about him. We have in the deal that Avraham makes with Ephron to purchase the Maris Machpelah, the burial place for Sarah, and eventually the Avos in general. The Torah tells us, V'yon Ephron as Avram lemor lo, that Ephron responded to Avram, and he said, Adoni Shemeini, my master, listen, Eretz Arba Meo Shekel Kesev, a land that's worth 400 Shekel Kesev, Beiniu Beincha, between me and you, Mahi, what is that? Ve'ezmezcha Kavor, basically saying, even though it's 400 Kesev, which is a lot of money, Habibi, my friend, don't worry about it. Take it, it's on me. The Yishma Avram, so famously, the next Pasuk says that Avram listened El Ephron to what Ephron, not what he was saying, but what he meant. The Yishkol Avram la Ephraim Esakasev, and he paid him the money, Asher Dibur Be'ozne B'neiches, that he mentioned 400 Meyo Shekel Kasev over Lesocher in the best possible currency that could be used anywhere. So Rashi points out, as you read these Psukim, Ephron is always spelled Ayin Fe Reish Vav Nun. Ephron. One place it leaves out the Vav. When it says, V'yishkol Avram le'Ephron, that Avram paid Ephron, it's just ayin fei, reish nun. So Rashi tells us, why was it lacking the vav? It's indicating that uh, because Ephron himself was lacking. Right? He, was, he was deficient in something. What was he deficient in? L'fisha Amr Harbe, because he was talking a good game, he was saying a lot. He was basically giving off the false impression that go ahead, take it for free, it's all good. <clears throat> but in reality, he wanted to juice Avram for every penny that he had. So he was lacking, we left out the Vav. There's an amazing perush of the Mugan Avos. The Mugan Avos is one of the commentaries on Pirkei Avos. He says, if you look at the gematri of Ephron without the Vav, Ayin Fei Reish Nun, that's 400. The phrase Ra Ayin, 
right? A, a negative I is also 400. So the Torah is leaving out the Vav to show us that Ephron himself was deficient. He was talking a big game. He was, you know, looking like this really uh, righteous person trying to help out Avram. But in reality, he just wanted to get as much money as possible. There's a drusha of the Maram Shif. The Maram Shif is one of the great Achronim, one of the commentaries on the Gemara. At the end of Chulin, he writes, this is source number four, Osan and Nashim HaOmrim, those men who say, talking about people in business, quote, Da, you should know, Lacha Achit, you, my brother, I speak to you with all of my heart. My heart is sholem, it's, it's pure with you. If they say any phrase like that, says the Miram Shif, that's a clear sign that they're lying through their teeth. Right? Once someone starts to, to sweet talk and give you the impression, I'm doing you a special favor, I don't know you at all, but obviously it's because of my love and concern for you, I want to give you a good deal, then you know that's probably not the case. The Gemara actually gives the example of Ephron as the classic example of someone who says a lot but doesn't really come through. The opposite extreme we know was Avram. When the angels come and he says, I'm going to get you a little bit of bread. Hold on, I'll be right back. In the meantime, he comes back with a whole lavish five-course meal, including tongue and mustard and many delicacies. So Avram was promoting the cause of saying a little and doing a lot. The other extreme was Ephron, lacking the vav, showing that he said a lot, but he did a little. That's what the Gemara says in Bab Metziah. What exactly is this concept where the Mishnah says, Emor ma'at Right? Speak a little, but do a, do a lot. What's the concept behind that? I think classically we would assume it's, it's a form of modesty. Right? Why do I have to go around telling people all the wonderful things I'm planning on doing you should know, last week, it was really an amazing opportunity I had. I was able to, uh, to support the shul with a quarter of a million dollars. And the truth is, you know, they came to me before, and I love supporting these institutions. The week before, the yeshiva came to me, and I, I don't like speaking about it too much, but I, I was really their main donor that helped them with the building. Um, they're going to have my name there in a plaque. I don't really care about the name, but... right. <laughs> But it's going to be right on top. And so we think it's a form of modesty, which is obviously the case, but it's much deeper than modesty. The, uh, the Medrash Shmuel, one of the commentaries on Perkeovos, he says there's actually something metaphysical, something mystical involved here. The advice of the Mishnah of Emor Ma'at Arbe is based on this idea that once a person tells you what they plan on doing, all of their amazing ideas and how they're going to create this thing and give to that charity, and they're going to learn all of this Gemara, as soon as they share that information, 
says the Midrash Shmuel, Ki b'segula kishel adam motzia misvasav az eno lomed masha amar ki hasatan mekatreg. Once you say it, there's some kind of mystical force now in place that, that's almost working against me. How that works and why that works, I'm going to leave to, uh, to Mr. Brenner to discuss after this year. But there is something out there mystical, but there's also something psychological. I meant Isaac, yes. Rabosha Feinstein says something, and I think this, this insight into the Mishnah answers a question that I've been bothered by for years. Why is it that when people get into certain conversations on certain topics, they can get so incredibly passionate? Right? The, the two classic examples would be politics and religion. If you want to keep a friend, don't discuss politics and religion. And like I've said many times, I try to keep that rule. I can't avoid religion being a rabbi, but at least I try to stay away from politics, right? <clears throat> but what is it? Why do people get so heated? We're sitting at a, some kind of diner, me and my, my three friends, and we're discussing the impeachment inquiry. And we're going back and forth and yelling at each other. And it's, it's, it's a wonderful discussion. I'm getting heated, you're getting heated. Why do I care? Obviously, I might feel strongly in a particular direction, but what's my motivation to try to change your mind? Let's say after our 45 minutes of eating bagels, drinking coffee, and yelling at each other, I'm able to somehow to convince you otherwise, okay? And now you walk away thinking that Adam Schiff is just a Russia, and he's the devil reincarnated, okay. Or you walk away thinking the exact opposite, and... What did I accomplish? What's going to change now in the world? Is that somehow going to have a ripple effect that eventually this is going to get back to Congress and this will have an impact on the destiny of the American people and the presidency of the United States? of No, it's worthless. So why do I feel so enthused and why do I feel so accomplished if I could somehow win an argument about something where I know it's not really making a difference? Ever think about that? <clears throat> so says Moshe Feinstein. He says, the problem with saying a lot is that there are many people, and we could all relate to this on some level, that when I see that I'm getting some level of positive feedback, some honor and some respect, Rak bishvil ha shalehem, just based on what I'm saying, my plans or my opinions, my philosophies. Oz shochim lekayim divrehem acherkach. Then they forget to actually follow through afterwards. Why? Darekavar ba lehem hakavod, because the honor has already been received. Ramosha Feinstein here is saying something incredibly deep. Why do I want to be correct? A large part of that is because I have an agenda. What that agenda is could be based on many things sociologically and, and personally and my background and my brain chemistry. But ultimately, 
I want to be validated. And I feel if, if, if I'm strong in a certain area, and you can now agree to what I'm saying, I've already accomplished my goal to some level. I start believing myself, not just that I think this is the right thing, but there's a part of me subconsciously that feels I'm already doing it. But you haven't done anything yet. You haven't taken one step forward to actually do something and help and take action. But the fact that I had the conversation and now people are looking at me and my perspective in a different light, I feel like I'm doing something. Therefore, says the Mishnah, don't speak too much because then you're not going to do what you need to be doing because you're going to feel like I already accomplished it. I was sitting with, uh, with a group of, of older, wealthy Jews. This is going back maybe four or five years. And uh, many of us were very friendly and we're having a lively conversation about the state of jewelry and what's happening in college campuses with anti-Semitism. And so there's a lady there, and we had, a, we had a very a fun relationship, let's just say that. So she starts yelling at me, right? Rabbi, you know what? I have to cut you off. I think this whole thing is ridiculous. The bottom line is we're not doing enough. Do you realize what's happening on college campuses throughout the country? So I responded, yes, I do. I'm, I'm very aware of it. And there's a lot that needs to be done. But what are you doing about it, Rabbi? Here we are philosophizing about Judaism. What are you doing about anti-Semitism on college campus? So I thought for a moment, and I had a brazen response. Right? She herself is an extremely wealthy person. So I said, Mrs. Goldstein, right, can I ask you a question? Sure. Right, there are many very worthy organizations out there, we don't have to reinvent the wheel, who are actively fighting anti-Semitism on college campus as we speak. Many worthy organizations, I can name you three or four right now. I just want to know, how many of them do you support and how much money do you give them per year? That's a checkmate. It wasn't thousands of dollars per year. So how do you have such a thing? You're so incredibly passionate and emotional about a cause, and you're yelling at me for not doing more? What have you done? Why do you somehow feel justified in your position? The answer is because I could yell at you about it, and that makes it feel as if I'm doing something. Right? That's the depth of the philosophy of Emor Ma'at, <clears throat> which really comes down to this very fundamental distinction. Is it about internal growth, about developing who I am and, and pushing through my own challenges? Or is it about finding comfort in the way either other people view me or even how I could delude myself in looking at me? What's, what's the real sense of satisfaction? Is it internal aliyah? I'm transcending prior limitations because I'm working on who I am? Or is it the image I'm trying to create for other people? Or even the image I could create for myself 
by pretending I'm doing more than I'm actually doing. The word kavod, how would you translate in English? Kavod, honor. Honor. The word kavod means honor. Is kavod a good thing or a bad thing? So it depends. On one hand, we have the mitzvah of kaved esavicha vesimecha, honor your father and mother. Honor is a good thing. We honor talmid chachamim. We honor older people. We stand up for people. The neshama itself of a human being is called kavod. David Amalek writes in Tehillim, Laman yizemercha chavod velo yidom. I want my honor referring to my neshama. I want my neshama to be able to constantly be singing to you, Hashem. The neshama is called kavod. On the other hand, we know that when we get trapped in that world of pursuing kavod and, and wanting and needing external validation, so that's the kind of honor where the Mishnah tells us, motzin esa adam min ha'olam. It could drive me out of this world. It can make me crazy. And no matter how much I'm getting, no matter how many followers I have, no matter how many subscribers I have, it's never going to fill that void. That's the toxic kavod. Now, the word kavod itself, where does it actually come from? The shorish is kaved, which means heavy. Which means heavy. What, by the way, right, totally parenthetically, what is the largest or the, the heaviest organ of the body? So the real answer is the skin. What's the largest internal organ? It's the, it's the liver. We could Google it. But the liver is up there top one or two. And the liver is called? Kaved. And what does Kaved mean? Heavy. Right? Probably not a coincidence. The chachma, the, the, the depth of wisdom and everything in Torah. So what's the opposite of kavod? Kal. Right? It's light. So we have kavod, which is giving significance. It's a heft. It's, 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 it's a value. That's what kavod is. There could be a toxic kavod. There could be a healthy kavod. We're going to explore what that difference is. And the opposite of covet is if we're just writing something off, writing off the idea, writing off the person, discounting myself. That's kalos. Right? Kalos harosh means I'm just I'm frivolous, I'm not paying attention. Kovet harosh, which is required for davening, is the intensity of the mind. So I want to share with you a few ideas here from Revolba on the concept of kavod. And I think this will help us just get into that clarity, zone into the, the Das Torah, the Torah perception of what healthy dignity and respect is for ourselves and others, and what kind of kavod can be motzi and esa adam and olam, can drive us insane and never allow us to be happy. Revolba starts off here in number 11, where he says, the world that we live in is olam rochim. It's a world of value. Meaning to say, even though we, we claim we're totally non-judgmental, and that may be true, but everything we do in life, every choice we make, 
it's based on an evaluation. I'm always evaluating my priority, what's my next step, what's my next move, what should I say, what should I not say. What's more chashiv, what has more of a pull? So we live in a world where everything has a value. Kol adam zakuk la Every human being needs that sense of value. V'chayev teluyimba. And our lives depend on that sense of kavod. We need to feel that we as human beings, that I myself, I'm something, I'm something worthwhile. I have significance. When we lack a sense of kavod, what happens? When I'm not machshiv myself, when I don't appreciate who I am or what I could accomplish, so then the quick decline into moral, just totally uh, neglecting responsibility, not caring for myself or others, it's a decline that could happen so quickly. The Gemara says an amazing thing. Ha'ochel b'shuk, if one who eats in the marketplace, not sitting down at a table like a mensch, but he's walking around eating a sandwich, it's kekelev, that's similar to a dog, and some were of the opinion that that person is invalid to testify. He's posel edus. We don't trust you in the court of law because you lack self-respect. We don't trust you. What do those two things have to do with each other? The fact that I'm walking around eating a Big Mac or even a kosher Big Mac. Right nowadays we have the, uh, the Impossible Burger. Have you heard of this before? The Impossible Burger. Totally vegetarian, and it sounds like it tastes just like a hamburger. What an amazing thing. So you're walking around eating your kosher Big Mac. I'm puzzled to testify. Why don't you trust me? Rashi explains, because if I don't have my own sense of self-worth, I'm not machshiv who I am. I don't have kavod ha'adam. I don't have respect for the human being. Then nothing will prevent me from sinking to the lowest levels of immorality. And I'll do and say anything as long as it's convenient because I don't have my sense of self to stop me. That's what a lack of kavod can do. <clears throat> Explains Revolba. He says healthy kavod is... It's a hanhoga chitzonis, it's a way we act, it's a form of behavior, but that's really coming from a sense or an understanding of who I am as a human being. It's a manifestation of kedusha panemius, of intrinsic internal sanctity. Kedusha mechayevis kavod. Holiness requires kavod. And you think about it, you know, even though the philosophy of it might be somewhat new to us, but, but the chush in, in our experience, it makes so much sense. If we think about someone we have the utmost respect for, not just because they're a good athlete, but real respect of who they are as an individual and what they've accomplished in life, to picture them, you know, walking around, you know, eating like a schlub, it, it doesn't go together. Why not? 
because the Kedusha is Machayiv Kavod. That intrinsic sanctity requires a level of behavior that's matim, that's fitting for who I really am internally. The Mishnah says, Ezehu Mechubad, who is the one who is truly honored? Hamachabed es habrios, one who's able to give respect and honor to others. It's a beautiful idea. What does that mean? You're truly honored when you could be machabed, when you could respect other people. Explains Revolba that if I myself am always searching for outside validation, it's going to be extremely difficult for me to really look at you and have a sense of awe or admiration and give you the kavod, the respect that you deserve. Vizos mipnei shehuroa es atzmo kamirkaz kola olam. That's because I view myself as the center of the world. And we all start off that way. Right? As little children, when we're barely discovering that, that we exist and we have our own identity, we are the center of the universe. And there's a maturation process that requires us to, to get outside of ourselves and to realize there's so much more going on. But if I stay in that mind of the four-year-old, even now when I'm 40 and 60 and 80, so then it's very hard to be machabed others. Therefore the Mishnah is saying, who is really honored? The one who has the ability to be machabed somebody else. That means I no longer view myself as the center of the universe. That means I'm okay speaking highly of you and I don't take it as a threat to myself. Revolba concludes, he says, when one's chasing after honor, when we have this, this, this quality of redifas hakavod, we're always looking for more, more people to look up towards us, more people to know who I am. He says, a person who's in this mindset, who's trapped in this downward cycle, she'eno yodeya ve'eno maker chashivuso amitis, he doesn't recognize his real chashivus. People who are looking for more and more followers and subscribers and anything else, that means because I don't have that internal sense of richness, I need it to be filled by you. Hamabit shelo al-atzmo, and the way I'm viewing myself is so incredibly superficial that my chashivas, my worth, is not coming from within. And that's why I need more than anything to get it from you, to get it from an outside source. Shoef lapirsim, we're always looking for publicity. I need to be the one standing out. We can't just be here doing something together. I have to somehow shine and rise above everybody else I'm with. I can't just be part of the chevra. Lastly, Revolba says, that when the Mishnah tells us that your Talmud, your disciple, you should give him the kavod as you would give a peer. Your friend, a colleague, you should give him the kavod as you would give your Rebbe. And your Rebbe, you should be mechabed kemara shamayim like you would give Hashem. So every person in a sense, we're required to give them one level of kavod higher than they're really deserving, so to speak. Why do we have that system? So it says Revolba, because naturally speaking, it is extremely difficult to give respect to anybody. And this is a very deep point. 
when I'm giving respect for you, if it's a positive reinforcement, if it's standing up for a Talmud Chacham, standing up for someone older than myself, if it's giving respect to my child's Rebbe, anything in that genre, I'm subjugating me to you. There's a, there's a sense of hachna, of humbling myself before somebody else, and that's a very difficult thing to do, especially in the world that we live. What's cool is to be cynical. What's cool is to put things down. To give kavod requires some level of real humility. I heard a story about Rav Yehuda Shmidman. He is one of the Rebbeim in uh, Zichon Arya in New York. A very special person. Someone told me that they were sitting next to him at a chasana. It was during a wedding. And they were calling up different rabbis for the brachos, for the sheva brachos. So they called up some random, out-of-town rabbi. You know, nothing super chashev. He was not a, a great Talmud Chacham, it sounds like. And as they called him up, and he's walking towards the chuppah, Rabbi Shvidman, who's a tremendous Talmud Chacham, he stands up, mole kamaso, all the way for this person. So the young man sitting next to him was a little bit confused. He's like, why would Rebbe stand up for him? You, do you know who he is? And his answer was, no, I have no clue who he is. So, so maybe you're not mechoyev, maybe you're not obligated to stand up for him. And he said, maybe I'm not. What do I have to lose? Right? It's such a simple perspective. I'm going to lose something by standing up for somebody? What do I have to lose? And we find that ourselves, even when it comes to giving the proper honor and dignity to Torah, Vilom de Torah, and those people who devote their lives to learning Torah, everyone gives lip service to the importance of Torah. And I'll support it even financially, maybe. But when it comes to really being machabed somebody, really showing, really expressing covered for them, it's hard. It's hard. I don't want to machnia. I don't want to humble myself. I don't want to subjugate myself before anybody else. If it's like Rav Shmuel Kamenetsky, Rav Chaim, Rav Chaim Kanievsky, right? Anyone with a chash of name who's at least, you know, 40 years my elder, then I'm okay with that. But to give cover to my son's Rebbe, I'm his same age. To give cover to somebody else in a different profession, right? Giving honor is a hard thing to do. But the distinction we see from Revolba, healthy kavod is it's coming from inside. It's emanating from a source of richness that I, I understand who I am and I'm just trying my best to be an Evid Hashem and that brings me fulfillment. The toxic covet is I'm lacking that inner peace and tranquility and therefore I'm always looking outside of myself to somehow fill that void, but it never does the trick. Those are the two types of covet. When it comes to not just respecting ourselves, but respecting others. So the way that I talk to you is not just an expression of what I think about you, but it's also an expression of what I, what I feel about myself. If I don't have real kavod or adam for me, it's hard to have the kavod for you. 
when it comes to writing, in the olden days, they had something called the letter, right? Your kid would go to camp, and they would write letters to you. They would have a piece of paper and a pen. Right, dear mom and dad, this is what we did today, and the food is disgusting, and my roommate's feet smell. However, we had a fun time last night with the night activity. You know, what's going on at home? How shmuley? Okay, that was a letter. <clears throat> How do you write a letter to someone is very indicative of your level of kavod for that person, and in general, your perception of what it means to be a, a dignified human being. I want to share with you an amazing letter from Rav Yeruchim Levavitz. He was the great mashkiach, the spiritual leader of the Mir Yeshiva. Listen to what he writes. These are words of, of criticism, but they're very instructive. This is source number 12. <clears throat> Shalom lachem, yikari v'chavivi. He says, Greetings. Baruch Hashem. Hinani nimsa bari sholem. Thank God, I'm doing well. I'm happy. Mechtavchem me'erev Shabbos Kodesh. Niskabel hayom. Your letter from Friday I received today. Baruch Hashem, al brios kulchem, and I'm glad to hear that you're doing well. It seems to me, though, that the letter that you sent to me was written very quickly. Which is now the common way of doing things. It's possible, though, you have the right time in the morning, you're more, uh, I guess, fresh, and you don't have so many things going on yet. You could write it at a time where you have more tranquility. Basically, he's saying, the letter you wrote me was, uh, it was like the simple person writing things that were not really with tochen, lacking depth and, and content. Not appropriate for someone of your stature, people who are immersed in learning of Torah. But not people like you who are sitting and studying Torah. <clears throat> and when you have a connection to Musr, of refinement, to write a letter like this, it's just not befitting. He says, I want to share with you three points. Right? Three ideas. The first is, when it comes to Ben Adam Lachavera, when it comes to the way I interact with somebody else, it should be no different than finding an esrog. When it comes to the mitzvah of esrog, you're supposed to look for the most beautiful one. There's a mitzvah of hider. I want it to be nice and perfect. The same thing applies when we have any communication with another person. When I'm writing a letter to my friend, I should find a niar yofeh, Write a nice piece of paper, diotov, good ink, osios behiros. I should write clearly and neatly. I sound like a fourth grade teacher, right? Don't forget to put your name on top of the page. Umagam devarim, tehorim, venoim. And the content itself should be with purity and it should be pleasant. Vaha'ikr, but the main thing is, lo bechipazon, it should not be written in haste. 
For what purpose? So your friend who's reading the letter or the application would be the text or the email or the tweet. It should cause it should cause him or her to feel good. To feel good about the relationship. To feel dignified about what you sent him. That's point number one. Point number two says, Rebbe Yeruchim, We have to be focused when any, any form of communication, in this case a letter, that it should be a chesed. I want to be doing something that's going to make you happy. And when I'm writing in a way where I'm not giving it any thought, right, or any level of, of, of uh, my time and effort, then that's not a chesed. I'm not doing you a favor. And he says, last, srichim lasos hakol b'kavana you should always think about who's going to be receiving the letter or the text or the tweet or anything else. And the goal should be, if I have in mind just just to get off the phone, I'm doing it in a way where it looks like I'm just being yotze, I'm just fulfilling my obligation of being cordial. Obviously, it's not a fulfillment of the mitzvah of chesed. <coughs> I'm losing my voice over here. But it sounds like Rabbi Rucham is saying three things. And this is coming, this is regarding letter writing. It should be nice on a good piece of paper with good ink, and there should be thought. I should be focused on chesed, on saying things that will make you feel good, because I want you to feel good. And number three, and they're all very connected, number three is, I should never give off the impression that I'm just doing this because I have to, and I don't really care that much about communicating with you. We could give examples of different tweets that have been out there, even by some of the leaders on many, many levels. But the point is, it's very difficult to have any kavod adam, a dignity for oneself or for anybody else, when I'm writing or communicating in a sloppy way, and I'll end up saying things that are hurtful, I'll end up saying things that I have tremendous regret, I wish I never said, but it was b'chipazon. The, 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 the way of communicating now is without thinking. And when I talk to you, or I text you without thinking, there's no way I'm going to avoid hurting you. So something to be conscious of. So a more ma'at v'asayarbeh, it all gets down to this distinction. Am I trying to create an image through talking a big game and therefore making people view me in a certain way or even making myself think I am a certain type of person? I'm, I'm getting lost into that world of illusion and it's all about the way I promote my, my persona? Or is it, right, just say a little bit and I'm going to do a lot because my main goal is real, internal, authentic growth with integrity. That's the difference. And that difference makes all the difference in the world. Michal Mirsky sent me a quote when he heard the topic. I'm not sure where it comes from, but it's, I think it's well said. It's not how well we play the game. It's deciding what game you want to play. And the way I understand this is, <clears throat> if the game I'm playing is self-promotion, you could do a pretty good job at that. 
right? Depending on what your field is. And sometimes that is part of real life. In my particular business, I'm in real estate, or I'm just trying to get patients, I'm a doctor, I'm a therapist, you gotta get yourself out there. People have to know that you're an option. And if you feel you have something unique, of course you want to and you need to share that with the world. But how do I define myself? How do I define my real success? Is it through the image I'm putting out? Or is it through the person that I'm developing inside? So the game you play, you might play it well. And you might have your face plastered all over the place. But it's not about playing it well. It's about choosing the right game to play. <coughs> Great book, Tales Out of a Shul, written by Rabbi Emanuel Feldman. We've mentioned him a few times before in previous classes. He was the great, I guess, founding rabbi in Atlanta, the Beth Jacob in Toco Hills. Uh, he writes that it's instructed to see what constitutes in the pragmatic American mind a successful rabbinic career. This whole book is really, it's a wonderful read. Anyone in, in the rabbinate, but really for everybody, just his, his insights and conversations and all sorts of wonderful stories that he had throughout the decades. <coughs> um, he got a flyer in the mail promoting a book written by a certain rabbi. This is what the flyer said. When in 1994... Rabbi Salzman retired from the active leadership of his congregation. He completed one of the most successful careers in the history of the American rabbinate. During his dynamic 50-year ministry, his one small congregation with modest facilities had grown to a membership of nearly 1,500 families housed in one of the most beautiful and best-equipped synagogues in the world. Right? So now, buy his book, because, as it says here in the promo, he is clearly one of the most successful careers in the history of the American rabbinate. Says Emanuel Feldman, On the face of it, a great success story. But on closer inspection, this demonstrates only that Rabbi Salzman knew how to run a congregation, how to raise funds, how to attract and retain members. What we do not know is whether or not he affected lives, or he changed people, or transformed them into better Jews. It's all about what game are we playing. Now, it could very well be this rabbi did all of that, right? But how do we define success? Is it through the American lens, where it's all about the PR? Or is it through the Torah lens of who I am and what I want to be? Rav Shlomo Zalman Arabach, he was uh, very, very makbid, very careful to avoid all types of kavod. There was one time where in the Hamodia they published there was a particular funeral that took place, and they had the line in the article that it was led by the Posik Hador, right? by the generation's greatest halachic authority, Reb Shlomo Zalman Arabach. So Shlomo Zalman saw the article, and he read this line, and he was disgusted. 
he writes to the editor as follows. He says, firstly, how can you say it was led by me? I arrived late and I stood on the side. <laughs> I did not lead the Leviah. Second, most importantly, when you keep on using that title, Posik Hador, right, the greatest halachic authority of the generation, it feels like you're punching me in the stomach. It feels like you're punching me in the stomach. And the truth is, it's, it's that kind of advertising that again is very much the influence of Western civilization. Right? What, what is, the, what is the, the, the greatest topic in, in sports history right now that I hear from my high school Talmidim? Right? Who is the goat? Atem Mavinze, goat, right? Greatest of all time. Right? And in basketball, it's ongoing debate. Michael Jordan, LeBron James, oh, back and forth, you know. Who's the goat? But that slowly penetrates Torah culture as well. And we love giving these titles. Posik Hador, Manhig Hador. So Rishlom Zalman felt very uncomfortable with it. Similar to Rav Steinman, similar to every true Gadol. Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, when he started his mission of spreading the Musr movement throughout the world, he wanted to emulate his Rebbe, Reb Zumbel Misalant. Reb Zumbel, Reb Zumbel was a nister, which means he never let himself, so to speak, be revealed. His whole life was very much besacer with his bodhidus in the forest in contemplation and working with, with, with people one-on-one never needing the fanfare, and Rabbi Yisrael himself wanted more than anything to emulate in the way of his Rebbe. The only reason he decided not to is because he felt with his unique kochos, with his personality, he was needed to get more out there and to give public shirim and to be more with the masses. But the desire is, I, I, I just don't want that. I don't need that. <clears throat> Why was Steinman so much against any eulogy, any kavod, any gathering? Part of it is because real Torah personalities are all about kavod ha'adam in the real sense. And they despise sheker. They loathe anything that's false or untrue. And of course, they're aware of their capacity and they understand their brilliance and they know they're needed to answer questions across the world. But when there's any form of exaggeration, any form of speaking about them in a semi-godly way, that's so repulsive because that's not what we're about. That's not real. And if we get Hana, and we all do as us mortal human beings, when we hear people speaking highly about us, it feels good. It feels good. But the more we have where it feels good, then the more inevitably we're going to search after that. And we're going to find ourselves going down the wrong path. That's the toxic kavod. It's not the real kavod. One important caveat here, though, before we close, is that when it comes to giving kavod to other people, Rabbi Yisrael Salanta writes this in a letter, we should never be concerned that maybe it's going to get to their head. Maybe they're going to view it in the unhealthy way and they're going to start thriving on it and needing more of it. That's not my cheshben. I need to praise you. I need to give you positive reinforcement and shower you with love. When it comes to myself, then we try to, <clears throat> to avoid that. 
I'll share with you the last will and testament of Rav Shlomo Zalman Arabach. And he didn't even phrase it, he didn't call it a tzava, a command. He called it a bakasha, which means a request. It's a request. He says, My tombstone should be no larger than my parents. Only write that I, that I taught Torah and yeshivas kol Torah. Nothing else. Eulogies should be brief. Speakers should just try to motivate and inspire the crowd. And please refrain from, from lavish praise, since praise greatly pained me during my lifetime. These are high levels to attain, but having the clarity and hashkafa of what we're striving for, real dignity which we all need to engender, and then PR, which we have to try as much as we can not to thrive on that, not to use that as our sense of self-worth. Have a great Shabbos, everybody.